Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. When I left number 10 two years ago, one of the things I wanted to start again was angel investing, taking small stakes in companies and helping them to grow. One of these companies is Cryptograph, which is a leader in non-fungible tokens, more commonly known as NFTs, or even more broadly, digital art. It was founded by today's guest, Hugo, who is one of the UK pioneers in this space, having got interested in it in 2017. But before we deep dive into digital art and the world of NFTs, I wanted to share my own experience with art. It hasn't always been positive. It was one of those at school where a teacher turned you off something and I found it hard to get into and not really very accessible to newcomers later on in life. I found at school that I didn't like being told what to think and how you should interpret different things. I thought it was stupid. Although, in reality, it was more I felt stupid trying to understand it. I was both rubbish at the practical side and the theory side of it too. So I dropped it as soon as I could and didn't give the subject a lot more thought. So what led me to back a company whose very purpose is around the future of digital art? To set the scene a bit when it comes to NFTs, before the pandemic, digital art was yet to really challenge the traditional art industry. It had lots of practical challenges about who actually owns the art if you could just take a screenshot of it and so easily replicate it. Now, of course, you could argue this is not something new the art world had to contend with. Of course, it had it previously when the camera was invented in the 20th century. What's made the difference with digital art during the course of the pandemic has been the growth of the use of blockchain, which acts as a digital ledger proving who owns the art. And this has been one of the main reasons for the explosion through the pandemic. OpenSea is a website where NFTs can be traded. In September 2020, it did a total of 50 million US dollars. In September 2021, it did 24 billion US dollars. So the term NFT has become increasingly common and talked about in tech and entrepreneur circles over the last couple of years. Searching it on the Times newspaper website, it's also been mentioned 33 times in the last year in various articles. However, it is yet to make an appearance in the House of Commons, which shows that it's not quite completely mainstream yet, perhaps. I've always had a philosophy that there's no such thing as stupid questions. Too often, we are constrained by barriers we perceive to be there. And it is a key part of design thinking and processes that you should deliberately change these parameters so that it will allow you to come up with new and different ideas that you had previously not considered. So I thought that this episode would be a perfect time to explore NFTs and digital art and see which jobs could be created over the coming decades. Now, I still do not understand all aspects of NFTs. It is a complicated and fast-moving space. And I also recognise that it might be a particularly difficult medium to explain on podcasts, because by its very definition, it is very visual. What I do know is that many of them are beautiful and compelling. 
And if you haven't seen or engaged in much movement before, I would encourage you to have a Google of something called Crypto Punks and Lava Labs and look at some of those art. They may at first seem simple JPEGs, but they have grown on me over time and I've become much more engaged with them. Although I am still skeptical about the millions of pounds that some of them trade for. So the purpose of today's episode is to explore NFTs, what they are, how they relate to digital art, with one of the UK's pioneers in space, with me asking the stupid questions so you don't have to. And as you'll learn in this episode, NFTs are a whole lot more than meets the eye. So to use Hugo's words, let's go down the rabbit hole. But before this episode starts, a big thank you to our series partners, Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. Octopus now has 10 billion under management and employ over 750 people with a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, we'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. Hugo, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks, Jimmy. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you kind of come across this space? Tell us a bit more about your personal journey, because, you know, when you'd finished your master's, you originally founded a virtual reality property uh, business, and now you were in this NFT space a long time before it was, I should put this in inverted commas as difficult it is, but before it was mainstream. Yeah. How do you... What information flows are you putting yourself in to find out about these technologies and tell us a bit about your personal journey as well? Sure. So, I mean, I, I did ancient history and classics at, at Warwick University, um, which is pretty far removed from the world of, uh, of, of blockchain tech in many ways. But I loved that. And um, I learned a lot about a time and period in the world that I'm very interested in. And then after that, I went and worked in, in banking for a year in uh, wealth management to be specific. And then after that, I, uh, I went and jumped into a, uh, a, a master's course at Imperial College Business in Innovation, Entrepreneurship and Management, which is also where I met my two co-founders. I just say that it was during my time in wealth management at the bank, which I think was in, I want to say 2013 or 2014 now, where I first discovered Bitcoin and I read the Bitcoin white paper. And funnily enough, at the same time, my older brother, George McDonough, who's CEO of a company called KR1 um, PLC, which is a publicly listed blockchain investment firm, he also discovered it around the same time. And so we, we both you know, were very taken down the rabbit hole by it when we realized what Satoshi Nakamoto had written in this white paper, what the implications are of a, of a fully decentralized currency that isn't controlled by a centralized authority and all of the other implications from that of digital scarcity as well and, and all the rest of it, you know, we were, we were very taken in and that's where my sort of interest and, and, and love of crypto sort of began. And then coming out of uni, um, out of the master's course, me and my two other co-founders, Edouard and Guillaume, Guillaume being the kind of super genius tech engineer um, and Edouard who's great on both tech and the business side. So he's a, he's a great sort of translator um, between both key parts of the business. We, we sat down together and we decided that we would um, 
playing around with virtual reality at the time, we thought there was a huge opportunity to bring off-plan developments um, via VR experiences for property developers and sales agents. And um, we started playing around in that space for a, for a year or so, um, but we were way too early. At one point, at one point, we were running around central London, going in and out of Savills, Knight Frank, and all of these spaces, pitching heads of marketing with a giant suitcase with a massive PC in it and a, and a, and a development kit two or development kit one Oculus Rift, and within about three minutes, giving the person nausea. So <laughs> we 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 were really, you know, we saw the opportunity, and now it is become an industry. But we were just too early. And so after a year or so of playing around with that idea where we learned a lot and we sort of, you know, I guess you, we earned a lot of our entrepreneurial kind of badges in many ways. You know, we, le- we just learned a lot going through that time because it's the first business we tried to set up. It was then about in, in sort of early 2017 when CryptoPunks was, was, was coming out. And soon after that, there was a foray of other, of other projects like CryptoKitties and, and other things that appeared on the, on the Ethereum blockchain. The three of us, along with George, sat down together and we started looking at this space and we just were just so amazed by the potential of the technology that we just dived, dived straight in. And that was um, sort of where it began. Can you explain to us the concept of what digital art is? So I think a, a good place to start is at the bedrock of this concept of digital scarcity. Because it's the advent of digital scarcity, thanks to the innovation of the blockchain, that really gives rise to this new revolution in digital art. Previous to the blockchain, right, which is a distributed ledger in which anybody in the world can write it. Everybody can see what everybody writes, so you can't lie. And once something is written in it, it's written in it forever, which creates this decentralized, immutable source of truth, basically. And when you can take that underlying fundamental layer and apply it to the digital world, you can create digital scarcity because for the first time, you can write something in the ledger that says person X owns asset Y. And everybody can see that, understand that, and trust that. And this can all be done without the need for you know centralized third parties. So it's really a foundational revolution in the ability to create scarcity in the digital world. Because before that technology, if you uploaded a, an image or anything into, it, 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 into the digital realm, which is basically just a series of zeros and ones, I could copy and paste your zeros and ones, and you would not know the original from the copy. Um, nor is there really a concept of original and copy at that time in the digital world. And now with this technology, I can upload something onto the, on, onto the internet uh, or put it into the digital realm. And I can attach a digital token that represents the ownership of that asset using a, a, a hash. And in so doing, there is now an immutable record that states that I own X. And because of that, if anybody was to copy it or screenshot the image or, you know, copy and paste the, 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 the art asset that's used up as the initial example. It's very, very clear that it's a copy because if they don't have the token that they sign from their digital wallet stating that I am the owner of this and here is the hash that matches, et cetera, and the hash of the media, then it's unequivocally clear to me that I'm looking at a fake, let's say, or a copy or not the original. And so 
bringing about digital scarcity through this technology, through the use of tokens being sit on distributed ledgers, i.e. blockchains, we have created a world where how we understand physical value in art and the scarcity of physical value in the physical world can now be transposed to the digital. And so that's the kind of fundamental basis of this. And that brings with it huge opportunity because for the first time we have digital scarcity on a, on a, on a decentralized basis. And of course, the reason, if we ask the listeners to think of the most famous painting in the world, pretty sure if we gave them a few seconds, that all of our listeners will now be thinking probably of the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And the reason the Mona Lisa is partly so famous is because a big row happened over who owned it. Mm. Um, and that is what this technology on the blockchain is developing, as you say, is that proof of ownership. Can you talk us through what a non-fungible token is and what an NFT is? Because that is what a lot of people will have perhaps seen in the media and, and on social media is NFTs becoming so much. So where are they in terms of an explanation of digital art? Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the first core concept is this difference between fungible and non-fungible, right? So in the world today, you've got some liquid securities, you've got currencies, and these are fungible assets, right? I can exchange one with you and you can exchange one with me. We both agree that they're equal in value. They're mutually exchangeable. Now, if you wanted to give me a cow and I was going to give you a chicken, those are two non-fungible assets. They're unique. They don't have the same mutually exclusive value. So um, that's why they're called non-fungible. And in the digital world, you have fungible and you have non-fungible tokens. Fungible tokens represent fungible assets. Non-fungible tokens represent non-fungible assets. So really, NFT is just an abbreviation for non-fungible token, which is a token that is unique and represents a unique underlying asset, basically. And so in terms of what an NFT actually is, though, I mean, that's sort of basic concept, what, what an NFT represents. But actually, what's more interesting is because it's programmable ownership, because it's a programmable system, an NFT is much more than, say, just a, a piece of code that represents the um, underlying ownership of a specific asset, because it's programmable, it's flexible, right? So and NFTs are basically blank canvases that are deeds of ownership in the digital world, but, but you can layer on tons of interesting new value on top of that deed of ownership. So an NFT one day might become a ticket. It might represent commercial rights into something. It might also act as a proof of ownership and therefore as a sort of social signaling mechanism. It could be a, a key that unlocks practical use in a physical network, say, uh, if I have my NFT and I sign within uh, with my wallet on, say, a, a scooter or uh, uh, or a piece of transport, I get like a specific itinerary or something that's unlocked by the token. So, you know, in its basic form, an NFT is it's only a digital certificate of hey, I own, I own this. But because that bridge is created and it's programmable, it can be so many more things alongside. So that's another really exciting future of of, of what NFT is going to evolve into. And that I think is so important because I remember when I was explaining to people when I come out of number 10 and this was my first angel investment I'd done, people mm. saying, well, why, why would you want to buy digital artwork for then everyone else to be able to see it? Kind of what's right, the right. point in that? And I always 
And it was exactly the point that you'd made to me in our first conversations is that, well, people own artwork and then automatically lend it to galleries for people to enjoy. And that sort of is partly social signaling, but it's also owning something that you want others to be able to enjoy as well. I thought that was really interesting and demonstrates how it could become more popular, which obviously it has done over the last 18 months. Can you talk us through um, CryptoPunks as an example of this and that, particularly that point around scarcity? Sure. So CryptoPunks, albeit they're not what we call um, ERC721s, right, which are, which was the which was the created open source go-to standard for an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, CryptoPunks were a little bit before that, but they're basically the same thing, except they're just not attributed to the official standard of what an NFT is in the current, in its current form. Um, and so they really were one of the first, the basis around CryptoPunks was, I guess, it was the first sort of issuance of art-based NFTs that are, and they have intrinsically designed collectible characteristics. So, you know, 10,000 of them was created. There were different traits for each of these things. And no more than 10,000 can ever be created. And each of these traits, the market of people that are looking at CryptoPunks and are reviewing them can decide whether some are rare or, or less rare based on, say, how many of the CryptoPunks in the 10,000 got certain traits. So there are sort of innate programmed rarity mechanics in the issuance of these 10,000 initial NFTs. And that gives it a little bit more sort of collectability mechanics into the, into the issuance of it. The idea of punk, I think, is quite, it, it, it's deeply rooted into the nature of this whole space, right? I mean, crypto and blockchain encryption, self-sovereignty, censorship resistance, all of this stuff is born out of the cypherpunk movement. Now, obviously, cypherpunks are a little bit different to our, you know, Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten punks, which is often what uh, uh, some of these crypto punks look like. But the idea of that, it's definitely, I would say, at least in my opinion, part of, you know, what was in this kind of crypto punk idea and the initial experiment really in NFTs is really what it was. And I think because they were the first of their kind, they were the first to sort of put out this model, the history and the mythology surrounding them has grown dramatically over the last three and a bit years because they were the first. And we've seen this market propelled from experimenting with 10,000 pixelated images of punks with different rarity mechanics through to, in my opinion, now the bedrocks of the infrastructure being built that will allow for any non-fungible assets in the world to eventually become tokenized and traded. So, <laughs> you know, if the initial experimentation in that future world was, was an experimentation of these 10,000 pixelated punks. That's why I believe they've got such, you know, historicity around them. Um, and, uh, I also think they're awesome and, uh, and, and I'm collector myself. <laughs> well, and, and that's it is that humans have always enjoyed collecting things. Um, yeah. and actually, you know, even things like stamps and so on and that's, but actually not owning something of a, a physical asset also has a benefit in terms of space and things like that. And yeah, for people's background, these crypto punks just are pixelated pictures, but they are quite striking. And because you see them a lot on 
social media now, it's they have begun to develop their own brands and identity. And it's it's quite amazing um, how that works. And uh, the newsletter writer, Mario from The Generalist, was talking about, you know, effectively people are buying into a brand and knowing what they're going to be getting by having these. And he drew the example, actually, with, with James Bond, saying that actually there isn't that much to James Bond and the series, essentially, you know, it's a, a British secret service agent that is going to get into trouble, that is going to get away in some implausible manner. He's probably going to meet a beautiful woman along the way yeah. and have a shaken martini. And that's, that's kind of all James Bond is. And yet it's, he is one of the most iconic figures of the 20th century and was drawing a similarity to how this digital art and certain types of digital art with enough fans and supporters and people that collect them could well end up having those identities as well. And I just thought that was a really striking example of what the kind of modern world means to people. Why do you think as of yet, more established artists haven't commissioned NFTs as much? Um, you know, David Hockney's exhibition recently was all digital art and yet not one was a NFT. I think, um, I think it's uh, baby steps. I think people are cautious of something that is new. I think it's rather complex. There are a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of, you know, there's also a lot of, 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 of hype happening in the space and a lot of things that, you know, may not have any real value or utility. And, you know, there's probably a lot of snake oil in here as well as really, really valuable stuff. And so navigating that and being uh, uh, confident enough to navigate that, particularly if you're already in the latter parts of your career and you're already so established, is a risk. And so I think that, you know, it's a matter of, 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 of handholding and educating before, you know, established artists, I guess, really, really jump in. I mean, Damien Hurst did a very interesting thing with his, um, uh, his his pieces and his his release, which I thought was quite interesting. He was experimenting between whether you want to own something physical or digital, and I think that was pretty cool. But um, I think that it's going to be a matter of time, really, before established artists do. Or maybe you know they're so far on, say, the laggard side of the innovation adoption cycle that they don't they don't they don't want to be involved in this market. Maybe they think that it's commoditizing their art. Maybe they think that it's uh, 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 devaluing it. Maybe they you know it's unpredictable and new. So I think that it's really the reason why I guess we're not seeing tons and tons of them jumping in, although I would say increasingly more so that we are, is just because I think it's the, it's the natural fear of something new. And when you've got something to lose, you've got something to lose. Uh, and if you're an established brand, you've got more to lose than, than say someone that's, you know, experimenting for the first time. When you're speaking to investors and you're trying to raise money from, from larger sources than, than myself, you're often talking about the kind of serviceable addressable market, which mm. is the market right now. And then the total addressable market of where you think this can go to. And there are many articles out there talking about the increasing amount the art industry is going to be worth and people saying that it could increase 50% over the next five years. How do you frame that? when speaking to investors about those potential market sizes? So I think it's a, a lot, lot bigger than that. Art is merely 
one small vertical, in my opinion, of where NFTs are going to disrupt. It's one where a lot of the initial experimentation has started quite, quite rightly, actually, and quite naturally. You know, it's often the artists that find something first and play with it before the mainstream begin to come in. And um, it's a, definitely a big market and a growing one. And there's, you know, a massive democratization potential here to make everybody who's an artist give them a way to monetize that immediately. And there's lots of really interesting things there. But fundamentally, I believe that, you know, one day every asset you see in the world that is non-fungible, both intangible and tangible versions, will one day become tokenized. Because when you tokenize something, you immediately give that asset more liquidity. Because the token can be sold anywhere, anytime, in any currency, with very with new price discovery systems and distribution methods that smart contracts and programmable money unlock. Just because of that, I think that 99.9% of the world's NFTs have not yet been created. We're, we're starting in, in entertainment and, dig- and online media and content and art and you know, even blockchain-based gaming universes, which will then probably expand into uh, 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 older Web2 gaming universes. But in the future, you're going to trade house deeds on this. You're going to trade fixed income assets as NFTs. You're going to trade um, intellectual property, right? Like patents and trademarks. The commoditization of someone's invention are going to one day become NFTs because you can instantly bring value and liquidity to these markets that are currently fairly inefficient, small, and, um, you know, where price discovery isn't that great. And in many ways, you know, quite tightly controlled. And so, uh, when I say the target addressable market, I basically sit there and I say, uh, every single asset you see will one day be tokenized. That I think is one of the interesting areas that we're seeing a, a bit of movement in um in intellectual property world is some big private equity houses buying up old catalogues of music mm, and mm. for me that's one of the interesting areas that you could you could see you know owning the original beatles track as an individual would be a huge potential thing to do so could you to talk us through some of the the perhaps more day-to-day ownerships that things could have, you know, perhaps music and things like that, which people can relate to a bit more? Well, in many ways, you know, in many ways, at least what we're doing it with this platform we're building at MyNFT is to try and create the infrastructure where people can come and create any NFT they want, sell it in anywhere in the world, obviously, because the internet is global in any currency, and, and then be able to showcase and so the creation part is important because you're really building the, the infrastructure with nice UX and UI that allows people to create these NFTs and harness the programmability potential of it without, say, needing to learn how to code smart contracts and, uh, and all the rest of it. What people will be able to do is then it's an evolutionary process of adding new and new features as standards and as governments and as frameworks grow with the, you know, the people who are innovating and building these, these, these platforms. because. One day I'm a user, uh, I come to say myNFT.com, I've created something, right? And I'm therefore the inherent copyright owner of what I've created. I can come to the platform and I can issue a token that represents the ownership of what I've created. And I could say, do you know what? For this piece, let's say it's a piece of music or it's an image or whatever it is, 
I'm actually going to assign commercial rights up to a certain amount, let's say, and I'm going to give uh, X amount of this to a charity and I want to implement a perpetual uh, royalty function of X amount or all these other things because it's programmable. And then, you know, I can issue my token and sell. And then whoever buys that token obviously gets the rights associated with what the original copyright owner imbued into that token and can then exploit those rights they've purchased, depending on what they are. So, you know, it's really putting the power back into the hands of creators and the people who own the intellectual property and the people who, who create things and giving them almost a direct route to, here's what I've got, here's how I want to kind of package it up or monetize it. And here is my market right next door, you know? And in many ways, you're disintermediating the six or seven people that sit between a creator and their, and their audience. And I think that's very, very exciting. So I already think that's going to start coming soon, sooner rather than later, given the rate of innovation in this space. But right now, if going back to your question on sort of what would be the sort of day-to-day things right now is, you know, the most common thing that we're seeing is I've created this image. I'm giving you a license to uh, use it, display it, use it for all personal use and the right to resell it however you want and wherever you want. That's really what you're purchasing. And then alongside that is the media that, that, that is associated with it. And then from that initial basis, we're seeing these other kinds of community mechanics evolve. So people are starting to create sort of groups around, you know, as you talked about before, CryptoPunks, like if you're a CryptoPunk owner, maybe you get access to certain things or, you know, people know what the general value of a CryptoPunk is. And therefore, if you have one that is authenticated as your profile picture, say on Twitter or whatever, that they know, you know, it, it's a form of identity signaling and, and, other, and other things. So day to day at the moment is very much that sort of uh, world. But I think fairly soon, we're going to see it evolve into the world that I uh, uh, alluded to, to to earlier. Talk to us about the the other companies. You briefly mentioned my nft.com mm. that you run there, but talk us through, because there are so many different aspects to it. And it we'll follow up by talking about the, the purpose of the podcast about jobs and so on and where they're going to be created as a result sure. of all of this. But talk us through those three companies that, that you run and the areas that they focus on in the NFT world. Sure. So everything for us started with Cryptograph. That was the first idea that we wanted to put out there. And that's been functioning and growing and going well at the moment, which is great. But what that is, is really these one-of-one NFTs, these digital uh, uh, collectibles, digital assets made by world-famous creators and artists. So we were trying to bring in really big personal brands and, and bring more mainstream into this space through doing that. And each cryptograph not only raises money for the creator, but also raises money for a charity of the creator's choice in perpetuity. So they're like digital philanthropic legacies is the idea. And um, they're initially sold and then they're traded. And every time they're traded, there's a royalty that is taken. Uh, we'll call it a royalty, call it, uh, you know, a, a, a giving fee in many ways that is taken and distributed to everybody who was part of the original revenue share agreement. And so it's a passive income instrument for, 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 for creators as well as charities and um, as well as for, for our business. And so by having everybody aligned at that revenue share level through this asset, it keeps everybody incentivized to deliver value to this thing long-term, which I think is really important because there are so many assets where it's all about let's sell as many as we can on the initial sale or just you know put it out there. And then because there's no long-term incentive alignment, it's just moving on to the next one. 
And I think that's also what creates a lot of this kind of fast consumerist kind of culture. But anyway, that's a story for, for, for a different time. But um, that's, that's the primary, that's where we started. And that's the, you know, we do, we don't do very many pieces. We only maybe do one or two drops a month. And they're all from, they're all from iconic artists and creators, basically. And then the second business is myNFT.com, um, which is going to be coming out uh, uh, next year. And this is going to be um, uh, basically a huge marketplace for people to create any NFT they want in any way they want, buy and sell in any currency, aggregate NFTs across multiple blockchains, sort of create a, a, a big home for creation and liquidity and activity and use that to try and democratize this technology, basically. Um, and then the third part of the business is this um, rather interesting auction system that we invented, um, which is just called GBM, which just stands for the surnames of the founders. But when we, were, when we were playing around with Cryptograph, we were looking at how you can change price discovery in a world where you have smart contracts and, and digital money. And um, we came up with this auction system, which is basically the concept of an incentivized auction. So in, in, in a GBM auction, the only two outcomes are you either make money or you win the asset. They're the only two things that can occur. So if you bid, say, 100, Jimmy, and I bid 200, you would get your 100 back plus an incentive of, say, 10%, make 110. And so what's happening is you're getting rewarded in real time for helping to discover the value of the asset. So at the end of an auction, if I'm the final bidder and I say, I bid 1,000, the seller would say, get 800 from the sale. And 200 will be distributed to all of the bidders in the bidding chain at varying incremental rates of return. And obviously, the economics of this, the game theory of this can all be tweaked. And, you know, that's what we do. But um, it, it, it basically creates really interesting price discovery dynamics and kind of revolutionizes the way that we discover value. And um, that's the third part of the business. And so each platform and each piece of technology share a lot of the same strategic alignment the, you know, if, if, if there's something positive that happens on one of them, it has a cross network effect to the other one. And, um, uh, uh, you know, it's all really quite, quite, quite exciting at the moment. And the auction system, we're now starting to license out to other companies and other projects that, 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 that want to use it. And it's, um, it's proving to do some, some really cool stuff. Is it, it's always been an amazement of mine, actually, that, you know, one of the first big internet companies the world ever saw was eBay and it was never really able to capitalize on that and become one of the the kind of giants alongside Google Amazon Facebook even though that most of them um where a lot of revenues come from are ads and people buying physical products online and having it delivered to them and i do think that that auction space is a um is potentially fascinating and it was interesting you talked about in your journey that you can be too early into markets you know and that can be a, a problem and perhaps the, sure. the world is, is much more um ready for an a, a real-time dynamic auction site and that's one of the reasons why i think it's so exciting and so talk to us about the jobs that you think that this space will create and, and where are you hiring for right now as well well i think i mean i'll touch on the on the on the jobs i think it will create first which i think is a huge number um i think that it's going to empower creators in a way never previously seen um and i think that it will therefore give 
creators much more of the fruits of their labors than they currently get. And it will empower so many others to then, you know, take that creative journey on as a, as a course of, uh, uh, as a potential career choice. I think that it will create new sectors like NFT consultancies, marketing outfits, advisory firms, like, you know, it's a whole new dimension of potential monetization. And so all of the peripheral businesses that could be set up around that, that we see that currently exist in the entertainment industry, I think will come to fruition. Um, I think that uh, our auction system, for example, will create a new form of, of job. You could become a professional bidder. I mean, you could, you could literally become an individual that seeks out GBM auctions and tries to maximize the incentives generated. You could just become a professional bidder, for example. I think that there's going to be a really interesting movement towards how you, you know, jobs like which lawyers are probably going to have to start wrapping their heads around. How do you start codifying our legacy rights systems into digital standards? And I see a huge amount of of, of work that, that that needs to happen there. Um, from our perspective, people that we're sort of hiring and the roles that we're, we're creating um, that we need are obviously fundamentally a lot of it is developer driven, right? So mm-hmm. this is a technology first industry and it's the developers that are building the infrastructure, understand the infrastructure and a call to basically creating this new decentralized world. And um, that's where, you know, 70% of our, of our team is, is, is really sitting. Um, but alongside that, um, we need people who are going to help communicate what we're doing. We need marketing and comms. We need people who can help educate and bring new business models and new offerings like the, the types of, that we're creating to existing companies, right? Who, 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 who may have a way to, 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 to extract value from what they are in this space. Really between those two parties, those two parts of the business, I mean, for us, that's really the, the core. We need our, our front office team of communicators and we need our, our, our back office team of builders. And that's fundamentally, you know, the two, if I'm going to simplify it, the two core components to, to, to our business. As is so often the case, the, the fundamentals of, of business and life don't massively change in terms of the mm. it'll be the tools and it's a very exciting new sector um but the fundamentals about kind of creation being able to sell being able to market these things are all going to continue to remain um so important the kind of ancillary jobs that you you mentioned as a result of that if you could paint as a picture pun intended of what <laughs> digital art and NFTs will look like in 10 years time. What are your predictions for it? Sure. Well, the first thing is, is that I think that the pushing of the boundaries of what you can do in the digital realm around art is going to keep getting pushed, you know, whether it's using augmented reality to bring something to life in, in, in more of a physical way, or whether it's totally immersive VR experiences or holograms or just really incredible hyper-realistic hand-drawn digital art or 3D models or, you know, in the digital realm, the opportunities to do things with art that you can't do in the physical are, are quite extraordinary. And so I think that that boundary is going to get pushed along. I think that increasingly so, the usage of that art is going to become more and more valuable and used in metaverses or in the metaverse. So, you know, 
rather Ready Player One type scenarios where you've got a piece of imagery or a piece of art that was unique and you've modeled it onto a t-shirt, say if you're an avatar in a world that you share with lots of other people around the world, but because it's an NFT, people know that you own it and that it's yours and that only you are able to do things with it in this world and this kind of thing. So and I think that art will start to garner more utility long-term because it won't just be an essentially pleasing thing to have and to showcase, but it will be something that you will use in a world and may have different, because of the programmability element, may have different things associated with it that you can do that others wouldn't be able to do because they don't have it. It's an amalgamation of, of things in that way. And likewise, you know, I might have my piece of art that I've turned into a t-shirt to wear in this metaverse, which at the same time, owning that NFT might get me access to that artist's next big exhibition you know, before anybody else or as a group of collectors, we all get access to it. So NFT art just has so much more utility, right? As I said before, a ticket, social signaling, something to wear in a video game or a metaverse, as well as ascribing to me underlying rights that the artist may have, may have given out. So in 10 years from now, the JPEG, as it were, that people like to, to say that you buy on OpenSea for a large amount of money might just be a JPEG now that you get to show other people that you owe that one day could become a core part of your identity in a virtual world that we will share. Fascinating predictions. And let's hope this podcast is still going on in 10 years time. And maybe we can uh, reconvene and see how close uh, we were on some of those. I hope so. That'd be fun. Some quick fire questions just to finish with. What's your favorite piece of digital art? And what's your favorite crypto punk? Um, Good question. My favorite piece of digital art it's very, very difficult to say. I like so much of, of what I see. Um, I buy things, like I said before, that are things that I, that I like. I've seen art that's related to characters like The Mandalorian. And I've seen art that's related to books and stories that I love. And I buy that. I've seen digital art that I think is brought alive through animation and is extremely well-crafted. And I just immediately are drawn to things like that. And so there's a lot of individual artists out there that, I just, I've just bought from sites like OpenSea, like Super Rare, like Foundation, all these places where these artists work can be found just because I think the quality is amazing and I like what they've done. Um, all the way through to uh, uh, CryptoPunks. And I think my, my favorite CryptoPunks will probably be, be my punks, um, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm, a fan of, I'm, a, I'm a fan of those ones. Um, and uh, can, can you could you mention a couple that listeners that have not heard of it at all could Google and have a look at quickly? A lot of a lot of the stuff I own, as well as the core artworks, are also game based artworks. So there's like Zed Run, which is a blockchain horse racing game. Uh, the horses are in themselves artworks, and there's a few of them that I think are awesome that I own. So you can go onto OpenSea, you can type in Zed Run, and you can type in like. Dead Certain is the name of one of my horses, and you can see that horse, um, which is in itself a piece of art. Crypto Pucks, definitely go check out, and you can see that. Foundation and Super Rare, really cool sites where you can just see like really beautiful artwork. There's a, a really cool new NFT game, actually. It's coming out called Parallel, which is kind of like a sci-fi card-based game that uses NFTs. And actually, the artwork within that is really amazing. So, you know, go check out, go, go check out some of the parallel NFT card artwork. I think that's amazing. There's loads of brilliant recommendations in there. If there was one NFT artist that you think we should go and speak to as part of Jimmy's jobs, is there anyone that instantly springs to mind? 
Hmm. Interesting. Um, I think uh, you'd have, uh, I think if you can get him, having a chat with Pac would be interesting because he's yeah. really pushing, pushing the boundaries um, in a lot of different ways. And he's experimenting a lot with different mechanics that you can do with NFTs. Um, Robert Alice actually is a, is a, is a, which is the pseudonym of an artist, um, did some really, really cool pieces. And uh, uh, he's also done a lot of really cool physical art. So I definitely have a chat with him. Those two, those two speak to mind pretty quickly for me, actually. And and is there a book? If people, well, a is there a book that's inspired you on your kind of business, personal, career journey that you would like to recommend, and perhaps one that's inspired you specifically in this space as well? For sure. So, personally, I uh, I'm just a massive Lord of the Rings fan. <laughs> I'm not sure that that has really brought me. It told me to to, to 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 go into business, but in general, I just adore that book. I adore the universe that he's built, and I think that the ability to imagine a fantastical legendarium that is that deep just absolutely amazes me. So, uh, love that. But if I'm going to be practical, I think a great book would be um, actually Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life. Um, I think that business starts with the individual more than anything else, obviously, and so understanding yourself and thinking through that is super important i think before you dive into anything and so i just recommend everybody read that basically in terms of books that have inspired me about this world and this industry there are two that probably lots of people say but then lots of people say it because it is just true and that for me is ready player one and snow crash both of which are books built around this idea of a metaverse because that is long term where i think all of this leads to they are excellent recommendations. Uh, they are both uh, very thought-provoking um, books. Um, and if you could go back in time to one 24-hour period in history, having studied at a university, pressure question, but where would you, uh, where would you choose and why? Oh, oh there's so much. Um, I would like to go back to the days of being in the court of Alexander the Great once he hit um, towards the end of his reign actually I'd have I'd be really interested to see just how all of that unfolded between what he'd done all of his generals all of that stuff I just find really intriguing and how he'd tried to unify the Hellenistic ideals and bring it to the rest of the world and that would just be interesting to see um I'd like to go back to the transition between the Roman Republic to the empire. Um, yeah. Uh, that would be great. I'd also, if possible, I'd like to be around to um, visit the birth, the birth of Christianity would be super interesting for me as well, I think. Um, it'd be really, really cool to see how that worked out. So if I had a time machine, those are probably three points I'd go to. Absolutely. Uh, fascinating answers. Hugo, thank you so much for a really thought-provoking discussion on the future of culture art and the future of jobs and what that entails as well thanks so much for coming on been a pleasure jimmy thanks for having me thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of jimmy's jobs of the future word of mouth is everything in the audio world so if you enjoyed this episode please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at 
jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.